0: Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. First up on today's episode, we talk about what tax increases on the wealthy would do for the economy. Massachusetts Senator and presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren has proposed a nearly 3 trillion dollar tax per year on big business and billionaires. According to Warren, this tax would fund spending in healthcare, education, and family benefits. And as a result, the economy would grow. So what are economists saying about the proposal? What would increase taxes on the wealthy do for the economy? Dave Hebert comes on to the show to help explain. He's a professor of economics and the director of the Center for Markets, Ethics, and Entrepreneurship at Aquinas College here in Grand Rapids. After that, we take a look at a new book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? It's a perennial question. How did Judeo-Christianity undergird our founding ideas? And why is this question worth asking? Mark Hall, who's a professor at George Fox University, joins me to lay out the main arguments in his book. Also, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. If you're looking for an article or a book that we mentioned on the show, I always put together a pretty thorough list of resources for you in our show notes. And you can read those at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton.org. ACton dot
1: welcome to acton line I'm your host John Caritas and today we welcome back Dave Hebert who is assistant professor of economics and the department chair of economics at Aquinas College
2: welcome back Dave hey thanks so much for having me
1: Before we get started on today's topic, which is Elizabeth Warren's plan to raise taxes by $3 trillion, um, I want to let our listeners know that Dave was here last week to do this really interesting lecture titled, How Ice Got to India, A Story of Property Rights and Pond Water. And believe me, it is pretty interesting. Uh, We have that lecture on YouTube, it's going on the blog today, December 9th, so you'll wanna take a look at that. It's really good. Enjoyed it very much. Oh, thank you. Today, we're talking about an article that appeared online. It's a New York Times article titled, Could Tax Increases Speed Up the Economy? Democrats Say Yes. And in this article, we learned that uh, Elizabeth Warren has proposed nearly $3 trillion a year in new taxes on businesses and high earners, largely focused on billionaires but sometimes hitting Americans who earn $250,000 and above per year. Now, uh, Ms. Warren, who is a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president, of course, is claiming that $3 trillion in new taxes will supercharge growth. Yeah. And she's saying this with a straight face. So I, I think we're going to take her seriously. Yep. Um, Elizabeth Warren may be our president. Who knows? Yeah. And so let's take a look at this now, if we can. And there's a lot of um, aspects to this. But I just want your initial take off the top. How do we get to a place where, after decades of, at least on center-right organizations reducing taxes spurred growth, now she has flipped the script to say that, no,
2: we have to raise taxes by trillions of dollars to do this. Right. How did we get to this place? Yeah. So this is, this is one of those situations where economics is perhaps the most frustrating. You know, the, the common joke is if you take any four economists and put them in a room, they'll walk out with five opinions. And the idea is that there's always offsetting kind of effects. So on the one hand, we do know from Keynes on forward that if you increase taxes, that's referred to as contractionary fiscal policy. It reduces economic growth because it takes money out of people's paychecks and puts it somewhere else. This is a standard thing that we would do to try to end a boom. On the other hand, we also know that Uh, households with lower income tend to have higher, uh, what we call a marginal propensity to consume, which is the idea that they spend more of their income than perhaps higher income households who can afford to save money. Proportionally. Proportionally, correct. Yep. Food, gas, rent, you name it. Right. Okay. So, and the idea is, is that when it comes to GDP, a lot of things that we value you know, as, as real people, so savings and investment, well, those don't really count toward GDP in the same way that consumption does. Consumption counts very, clear, very clearly and very quickly. Investment might take years for it to count, and then we would count it as some other weird form of consumption anyway. This is why a uh, Nobel Prize winner uh, recently came out and said, hey, GDP might not be the greatest measure, and it's not. It's really not that great of a measure. But it might be the best measure, you know, that we have.
1: Okay. So there's problems with GDP. It's a big number. It um, doesn't uh, go too deep, right? Top line number. Yeah. So Warren is making the case that the economy could benefit if money is redistributed from the rich and corporations to uses that she and other liberals say would be more productive using hard data. um, She points to uh, wealth inequality Wealth concentration. So she's making a moral argument here, right? And her her solution to the uh, moral quandary is to raise taxes, redistribute right. income. We've heard this before. Yeah. She also has uh, economists on her side, uh-huh. uh, and uh, we know that uh, part of what has influenced her thinking is a book that has come out recently titled "The Triumph of Injustice." It's a couple of uh, UC Berkeley economists, Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, uh-huh. and they are doing, according to another article in the Times, pathbreaking work on taxes. Yeah. There is an economic argument being made on both sides for this. How do you sort this out? How do you—what's— What's the evidence for both sides, right? Acting, yeah. obviously, we're going to say lower taxes spur the economy.
2: But the other side is saying, no, not so fast. Right. So I think there's, there's two kind of claims we can look at with respect to this argument. One is that it's, it probably – it might – let's say this. It might be true – that wealthy people have serious political connections and are able to use those connections for supposedly nefarious means. The same, the standard, you know, crony capitalism claim. And there's two solutions to that. You know, one solution is to uh, take away the power from the the people who are buying the favors. In other words, the people who uh, have all the money and are buying the politicians, right? And that's the plan that. Uh, Ms. Warren and, and lots of Democrats want to do. You know, they want to take money away from wealthy people so that they can't buy politicians. Okay? Seems fair enough. The challenge is that Elizabeth Warren and everyone who are proposing these things are politicians themselves, and you can't really have someone buying a favor without someone selling the favor. So at the same time, why don't we say rather than taxing people to limit their power— why don't we limit the, fe- the federal government's power to hand out favors in the first place? Because after all, if the federal government can't give out favors, then no one can buy favors, right? This was the original argument of the framers and the original writers of the Constitution. They established a limited government with the idea of trying to prevent this type of cronyism. This is something that Randy Holcomb writes about in his latest book on political capitalism. The other argument that we can try to make is to think about, you know, what sort of message does what Ms. Warren and the Democrats are, are trying to say, what does that message send? Okay, so what they're looking for are basically economists who agree with them that are going to come out and say that what they want to do is correct, now, the Democrats have tried to build themselves as the party of science, the party that's going to look at the facts and lead, you know, the charge with evidence and transparency and honesty. Right. You hear that argument, as things like on climate change. Don't right. you believe in science? Yeah. Right? Don't you Conservatives. Believe...
1: What's wrong with you, right?
2: Right. Now, how good of science is it if you are just running around trying to find someone who's going to say that you're right? That doesn't sound like good science. That sounds like the exact opposite of good science. Right? You're just trying to build – in fact, in this article from the New York Times, it says that they're trying to build models that will say that what they want to do is going to work. That's not how science works. You start with a question, you apply the scientific method, and you let the facts speak for themselves. And they openly admit that very few models exist where tax increases of this magnitude end up working. But that's not going to stop them from trying to find one. No in economics
1: you construct a model uh-huh. and you use that to further your position on a certain question but models are constructed by people economists with biases yep sometimes the models may not be correct they may not pan out uh-huh. so how do we have any confidence that the models that economists like the two i just mentioned are going to uh, play out uh, as they say it will and if they don't uh-huh. What are the ramifications of uh, trillions of dollars in new taxes? And by the way, it's not the only measure she's um, putting forward to vastly increase the size of the government, you know, Medicare for all, pay away with student debt, the Green New Deal, which is people are having trouble putting a price tag on that. Right. Um,
2: So what are the consequences if this model doesn't pan out the way she says it will? Yeah. The consequences for this are are dire. You know, this is a a complete transformation of how the American economy is supposed to operate. And so if she's wrong, then you have fundamentally altered everything that we know to be true and everything that we know that currently works to the extent that it does today. You have fundamentally altered essentially every aspect of the American economy. If it doesn't work— then you have destroyed basically the entire thing. And what you've done is you've ramped up government involvement in the economy from I think it's somewhere around 30 to 40% right now, you'll ramp it up to 60 perhaps even 70% of the total economy. And it's not like you can rewind that with just another bill you pass. Right, that's the thing is is once something becomes passed, it's very difficult for us to actually undo it. You know, we we saw even in 2016 When we had a Republican in the White House, a Republican Senate and a Republican House that even then, with everything stacked against the Democrats, we did not see the Affordable Care Act get repealed.
1: Good example. A good recent example.
2: So the
1: backdrop for this, as we said earlier, is the moral question. What's suggested in and around all of these proposals that things just aren't fair. The economy is not working for everyday average Americans who go to work. And you hear some of her advisors saying that, you know, the usual things about the middle class is shrinking, breaking down, middle class not benefiting from this. So talk to us a little bit about income inequality, which is a real thing, Uh you know, headlines full of people, billionaires and how they're getting richer and richer, Bezos, Bloomberg, Gates. How do you put their riches into perspective, given what else is going on in the economy. Is there some—is Warren right that uh, these, as
2: she puts it, lazy billionaires need to uh, be taken to the woodshed? <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't think I've ever met a billionaire that was actually lazy. I think um, if you look at any of the the data that we have, and, and granted, it's survey data, so may, perhaps they're all lying, uh, if you look at the the data that we have on how much work or how much time billionaires spend in the office or actually doing work, it's somewhere around eighty to ninety hours per week, you know. And so contrast that with full time employment, employment being defined as forty hours a week. You know, I don't really know where anyone gets off saying that billionaires are are lazy. They're some of the hardest working people that perhaps ever existed. Now, that's not to say that you know, hard work is, is all that's differentiating things or that there perhaps aren't some unfair advantages going on, you know, I think this is where Randy Holcomb's book on political capitalism comes in to play where there is a type of, of wealth, if you want to think of it this way, in being wealthy in the sense that you can actually buy favors from politicians and, and that seems true. You know, we don't typically see uh, lower income households banding together to lobby Congress for anything. It's typically a very narrowly defined special interest group that has a lot of money and a few people, cuts down on the organization costs. And so there is, to me, there is some concern about that. You know, crony capitalism exists. It's what we find ourselves having today. The question is, what is the solution? So I think everyone agrees that we want less of that. But the question is, how do we get less of it? One way that's proposed by the Democrats is to tax our way out of this. We tax the wealthy people and limit their power. Okay, so essentially, we're going to take money from people who have earned it and just reduce their power that way. To me, the fairer way to do it— because. Remember, taxes are, are very little more than a penalty that you impose on people. You know, yes, there is some element of taxation being the price we pay for civilization, as Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, but disproportionate taxation seems to me like it's a bit unfair. And so the fairer way to do it would be to try to limit the amount of things that government can give out as special favors. Now, this is not saying that we should end welfare payments. It's not saying that we should move to a flat tax. It's not saying any of that stuff. It's saying that right now, in its current form, the federal government has the power to quite literally pick winners and losers in the economy. That's a very dangerous position to be in or to have the federal government be in. Right, and you—I mean, the headlines every year, every tax
1: season— big business X, Y, and Z. These companies haven't paid hardly any taxes. They're offshoring yeah. their money. Uh-huh. Um, and then, I don't mean to pick on Amazon and Bezos all the time, but um, we just went through a big competition among all these cities, including yeah. Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we're sitting, right, to lure uh, Amazon facilities in. And it was just a festival of Giving Amazon whatever they wanted and more to get them there. Yep. Now you're not this is not happening with smaller and medium-sized companies. It's happening Correct. with bigger companies, yep. as you point out. So tax fairness is is an issue as well. And I think that's what Warren is getting at. Uh-huh. So are you arguing then rather than to impose a bigger burden of taxation on the wealthy and corporations? that structural changes in how we run the whole system would be a better way to go at it, and then that would leave room for investment and employment and all the other things that uh,
2: center-right free market think tanks argue for? Exactly. So right now, the, the way that cities, states, and everyone compete is by giving out tax breaks to companies. Now, I'm sure that companies do owe some amount of taxation you know. In, in general. I don't want to argue that the best tax is no tax. That's not what I'm trying to say here. And I certainly don't want to argue that uh, AOC was correct in, in rescinding the tax break that she gave to Amazon for moving to New York City. Because Boy, did she get a lot of blowback, though, in her district, huh? As well she should. So, yeah. I mean, what she essentially committed was fraud. And if it were a private company— You know, she would go to jail. I mean, this is a classic bait and switch. She promised or wasn't technically her, but her predecessor Mm -hmm. promised Amazon, you know, the moon and back, which maybe he shouldn't have. So, you know, we'll set that aside. But regardless of whether he should or should not have, a promise was made, contracts were signed, Amazon started to move forward on moving into New York City, and AOC waited essentially until the cost of Amazon to undo all the things that they did and the PR that they would have received from pulling out of New York City was so large that they couldn't possibly do it. And then she pulled the rug out from under them. That's a bait and switch. That's fraud. If a car dealership did that, they would go to jail. Essentially, for listeners who have either seen or read the, the movie and book Matilda, Matilda, AOC is being Matilda's dad right now, who is throwing sawdust in the transmission of a used car to make it sound like a new one and laughing his way to the bank. That's terrible. So you you talk about crony capitalism, and yes, it exists. And as we said
1: earlier in this conversation, if Warren is successful— inner plan, Uh enlarging government um, dramatically, then this cronyism can only increase as far as I see it anyways, because all the cards will be held by government agencies and politicians. Crony capitalism, depending on how you define it, can work at the local level. I mean, your local widget plant wants to expand. They get a tax abatement from the local company. Uh It seems to me that is so pervasive here that you're going to make some changes to it around the margin. I think where the big companies like Foxconn, you know, in Wisconsin, yeah. another case, um, and Amazon, I think that needs a lot of attention. Uh-huh. So Warren's plan will probably have unintended consequences for cronyism, right? As will her new Green Deal and all these other plans. Absolutely. Let's look at what's happening now. The economy is going great guns. Uh-huh. Employment levels are high. Yep. And every demographic you can think of in this country, historic highs, people are back to work. Trump tax cuts um, a year or so ago uh-huh. uh, have kicked in. And she wants to reverse all of that. So right. what will that do to business confidence If she were to be elected, do you think, what kind of message would that send to people wanting to invest and hire?
2: Yeah. So there's a couple of things. First off, that I think is is most important is this concept called regime uncertainty. And the idea is that when the law is changing back and forth constantly in somewhat of a haphazard way... Well, that diminishes the confidence that businesses, entrepreneurs, and even private citizens might have in sort of the future economic outlook. And what do you do when you're uncertain about your future economic outlook? Well, you hang on to cash. This is something, you know, we chastised the banks in 2009, 2010 for paying out bonuses to their executives instead of lending money. You know, we went through, I think it was four rounds of quantitative, quantitative easing. We pushed interest rates very close to zero on the sideline. Right, and and all of that just kind of stayed in the bank. And the question is why? Why would it stay in the bank? And the answer is because the financial industry itself was nervous about forthcoming regulations on their activity. And so what do you do when you're afraid about, you know, the legality or the regulatory environment that you're going to find yourself in? You hang on to cash, right? That slows economic growth, it slows hiring, and it leads to real people really suffering. What Elizabeth Warren's plan would do is contribute to this regime uncertainty. So we had you know, President Trump come in, rightly or wrongly, cut taxes in the first few months of his stock presidency. The stock market takes off. stock market took off, unemployment dropped precipitously, you know, incomes rose, all sorts of things were wonderful, right? And that's great. But if you get someone who comes in and not only undoes just that but undoes it and then goes even further, well, what you're going to do is you're creating tremendous uncertainty in what the office of the presidency is going to do as, an en- as its own sort of entity and that can only harm economic growth in the future. There's no reason why uncertainty would increase economic growth. Bring some things to a standstill until you figure out what's up, right? Right. I mean, you stand – exactly. You stand still until you see where you are headed and then you actually start to make moves. This has
1: been very helpful. Let's wrap up with a question. If you – let's accept Elizabeth Warren's uh, argument that wealth inequality is a problem and we're going to appoint you uh, economic czar. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Okay, and we're going to send you to Washington. Yeah. You get one thing to do, one measure to put in place, totally on Dave Hebert's uh, (laughs) authority. Oh, boy. What would you do to help uh, this uh, wealth inequality issue
2: to take away this this, uh, unfairness argument? So I would want to do... Uh, two things, and since I can only do one, I'm going to write one long bill, okay? And so my one long bill would have two parts. The first would be to drastically limit the power of government, uh, which today exists to essentially benefit wealthy people. Uh, That seems to be the primary function of government as it's operating today. Now, it's not the correct function of government, but it seems to be what they do today, the second thing that I would do is I would try to scale back occupational licensing. So there, what you're essentially doing is you are blocking uh, access to jobs in markets where less training or or what we could we could call low skill labor. You are essentially preventing people from finding a job in the first place so we see examples of this you know louisiana up until recently you had to have a license to be a florist to put flowers in a vase You required a license right and you know barbers this is a thing where... Hair braiding, stuff like well, that. Well, I yeah, mean, not even yeah. just that, but the, the argument is that your barber uses dangerous acids and alkalides, oh. you know, every day, right? And it's like, well, so do I. It's called shampoo, right? And I've, <laughs> I've successfully managed to wash my own hair every day for the last, you know, 25 years. And your hair looks great today. Oh, I thank you. To I that, appreciate yeah. that, right? And so I tried, you know, I used those acids and alkalides. I got a little bit in my eye this morning, but, you know, thank God I was able to soldier on. So... That, to me, is is what really stands in the way of progress, especially among low-income people. Right. Is from the ground op- up. From the ground up. You know, right. This is preventing them from doing things that are easy and profitable. Great. Well, on the strength of your first bill, I think we may have to look for a cabinet position for you. Uh, I don't think I want that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Dave, thanks for joining us today on Act in Life. Yeah,
2: thanks so much for having me.
0: Our most contentious controversies today are moral. We disagree not only about the questions of efficiency and democracy, but also about what is right to do and who we are becoming as a people. To disagree well and to flourish together despite our differences, we need to understand the sources of our moral ideas. Join us at the Acton Institute on January 23 to hear Adam McLeod, professor of law at Faulkner University, speak on morality and civic discourse. This lecture will examine the roots of our disagreements and advance a proposal for doing difference well. We can preserve civil liberties and pluralism by grounding rights in moral reasons, which provide a more secure foundation for civil rights. To register and view a full calendar of upcoming events, visit acton.org slash events. That's acton.org, A-C-T-O-N dot slash events. Many Americans have been taught a distorted, inaccurate account of our nation's founding. One that claims that the founders were deists, who desired the strict separation of church and state, and that the country's founding political ideas developed without references to Christianity. These claims are patently and unequivocally false. Those are the words of Mark Hall, pulled from his new book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Mark is the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics and a Faculty Fellow in the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: So... I am tempted to first open up our conversation with, so, Mark, did America have a Christian founding? (laughs) But first, I just want to define our terms, Um, because at the start of your book, you dive into what exactly you mean by a Christian founding, and it's important to define what that means first. So, of course, we can dive into whether or not we have a Christian founding. So how do you define a Christian founding? What does that mean?
3: Sure. That's a great question. So by Christian, what I'm interested in, you know, there's a couple of different ways we could define it. We could say that Americans in the late 18th century identified themselves as Christians. If that's what we mean, they indisputably did. Um, We did have a Christian founding, 98% Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic, about 2,000 Jews. Uh, But that's not a very interesting claim. It's not an interesting finding. Another possibility is that we could argue that they were all Orthodox Christians, that is Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, uh, believing Christians, um, here I, I do not take that approach because it's almost impossible to show that with respect to many founders. Now we know, you know, for as far as we can know for sure, that a number of them were deeply Orthodox Christians. We know that a few, just a tiny handful, were not Orthodox Christians. So Thomas Jefferson. Uh, John Adams um, and Ethan Allen, for instance. Um, But it's just simply impossible. to. uh, We don't have the records, the diaries and letters and so forth for many of the founders. And so what I end up landing on is influence. What I argue is that America's founders were influenced in very significant ways by Christian ideas or by ideas developed within the Christian tradition of political reflection.
0: And in doing this, you separate historical truth from what you say is a modern myth. So what is the myth that you are parsing out?
3: Sure. And by myth here, I mean a false account. A myth, of course, can be a true story. But here I mean it in the vernacular. It's a false account. And so I attack in four or five substantive chapters a variety of claims that are routinely made by scholars, by very prominent scholars or popular authors, things like America's founders were deists that America has a godless constitution, that America's founders desired to build a wall of separation between church and state. And I set up, just so my readers know I'm not making this up, I set up each chapter with a dozen quotations. And then if you um, go to the footnotes, you'll find another if you go to the end notes, you'll find another 16 or so quotations from, again, very prominent scholars saying things like most of America's founders were deists. And then within each chapter, I just I, I would like to think I demolish these false accounts and then affirmatively argue that America's founders were influenced by Christian ideas in very profound ways.
0: What is the evidence used by these people who claim that basically America didn't have a Christian founding or it was founded largely by deists? What is the evidence that they use to defend this?
3: So I'll take um, the claim that most of America's founders were deist. Again, you see this made all the time. And almost inevitably, the argument works like this. An author will look very carefully at the four founders who became president, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison, um, usually throwing at Ben Franklin and Alexander Hamilton, and then maybe an additional founder, a favorite, a Thomas Paine or an Ethan Allen or something like that. And they'll look very carefully at these founders. Um, and argue and lo and behold they find and it's clearly the case I've already um, conceded that a Franklin a Jefferson and John Adams are not Orthodox Christians Um, But that's not the same thing as being a deist. A deist, of course, is someone who believes in a creator God, that God created the universe and then steps away from it and doesn't intervene in the affairs of men and nations. If that's our definition of deism, then none of the founders, uh, none of those founders are deists. And as well, I would go on to argue that it's not even clear that a Washington, a Madison, a Hamilton are heterodox Christians. That is, there's no evidence, there's no clear evidence that they um, reject any tenet of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Now, you can point to things like, we know Alexander Hamilton had an affair, and clearly this is something that good Christians ought not to do, but that's not the same thing as being a deist. There just simply is not evidence that these founders are deists. Now, um, if one turns from these founders to the rest of the founding generation, what one sees is Whatever sort of evidence that there seems to be of deism just evaporates, or heterodoxy, it just evaporates. And one of the things I argue is that these five or six founders are a profoundly unrepresentative sample. So, for instance, Franklin spent over half of the last 35 years of his life over in Europe – Adams and Jefferson spent significant time in Europe. Alexander Hamilton was even born in America. Tom Paine was born in England and only spent about 26 of his 70-some years in America. So these are very unrepresentative founders. They're all Anglican, with one exception, John Adams, at a point of time where only about 15% of Americans are Anglicans and 50 to 75% are Calvinist, Congregationalist. Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, and this sort of thing. And so it's just a profoundly unrepresentative sample. So I try to, first of all, demolish the argument that even these five or six are deist. But then I suggest that when we turn to the broader um, founding generation, that the evidence that the founders were deist or even not Orthodox Christian, it just evaporates.
0: Would you say largely that scholars and authors have wanted to say that they were deist just because the founders that they referenced weren't openly pious,
3: Yeah, and I'm not even sure I would concede they weren't openly pious. Someone like George Washington um, seemed to be very, very pious, and others regularly attended church services and this sort of thing. Thomas Jefferson even went to church services in the U.S. Capitol building, which is sort of remarkable for someone who purportedly wanted a wall of separation between church and state. I I think a couple of things are going on. First of all, some scholars are just lazy or not very thoughtful, and they think that they can somehow generalize from this handful of men— to the entire founding generation, I think sometimes there is an, uh, an agenda at work that founders are that, that scholars are looking for founders who reflect 20th or 21st century values. That is, they aren't uh, deeply pious traditional Christians, and so they latch on to someone like a Jefferson or a Franklin who clearly aren't these deeply pious traditional sort of Christians. Um, I, I think the agenda with respect to the founders being deist. Isn't that strong? But I think once we turn to law and public policy, to things like the meaning of the Establishment Clause, there I think it's profoundly driven by a desire to find particular outcomes that we that that certain justices or attorneys or scholars prefer in the 20th or 21st century.
0: America's founders drew from their Christian convictions to create the constitutional order. Um, that we benefit from, you argue in your book. And this benefits all Americans, not just Christians. Can you unpack that for us? Why is that?
3: Sure. So I think um, this is referring to my chapter, Does America Have a Godless Constitution? Of course, a number of professors have argued that it does. At one level, what they mean is simply that the deity is not referenced in the Constitution. And that certainly is the case, not to get to the dateline in the year of our Lord, 1787. And I certainly wouldn't put too much uh, emphasis upon that dateline. Uh, but these scholars go on to make other arguments. First of all, they argue that most of America's founders were deists, and I think uh, that's demonstrably false. But they also argue that America's founders were influenced by secular enlightenment ideas. And here, I'm very happy to engage them because this brings the argument back to my turf. Remember that I want to argue that America's founders were influenced by Christian ideas. And so in this chapter, I unpack several of these. I'll mention just two right now. A critically important um, Christian idea that humans are created in the Mago Dei, the image of God. And I think this had profound impacts for the founder's approach to politics and law. James Wilson, in his lectures on laws, um, says that because we're created in the Mago Dei, life must be protected from its conception to its natural end. He addresses suicide and says, of course, people don't have a right to kill themselves because it's not their lives it's God's life. Um, similarly, with respect to um, the sinfulness of human nature, the founders were uniformly convinced that all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. that even redeemed humans, continued to struggle with the old man within. And so therefore, when it came time to design a constitutional order, they designed one with federalism, rule of law, checks and balances, separation of powers, and that sort of thing. By way of contrast, some Enlightenment thinkers at this time were going in exactly the opposite direction. They argued that humans are basically good, that the government should be run from a central authority, run by the experts, right? Why let the hoi ploi be involved in running the government? We'll have a government of educated experts with a lot of concentrated power. America's founders would have nothing to do with that. And there are several other ideas as well that I unpack in the chapter, but I'll stop there.
0: That's a perfect segue into my next question because I'm still wondering – about you know the so what question, why does the misconception of the founders' faith or lack thereof, why is that a problem, and how does it actually affect us?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. One my wife has been asking for years. So I've, I've written or edited a dozen academic books, and she kept asking me, so what? Why does it matter? So this is my first book aimed at the general reading public, and I do attempt to lay out in the introduction the so what. So first of all, I just have to say that it's important to have an accurate account of our nation's history. And I would say that if I was a resident of France or Japan or any other country. And so simply setting the historical record straight, in my mind, is this so what enough? And yet we can go on to talk about law and public policy, particularly when it comes to the um, religion clauses of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In 1947, this U.S. Supreme Court made it crystal clear that we must interpret the religion clauses in light of the founders' views. Now, I'm perfectly fine with that, but the problem is that many justices and many attorneys and many professors have gone on to present a very inaccurate account of the founders' views. For instance, they argue that the Establishment Clause creates a wall of separation between church and state that would prohibit things like um, World War I era crosses memorializing dead um, from a county, or that would prohibit a vouchers program that would provide vouchers to parents to send their children to religious Uh, schools, or um, various religious liberty protections would be a violation of this wall of separation in the minds of many justices, uh, professors, and attorneys. And so I think when it comes to these sorts of issues, it's very, very important to get the the record straight. And just to um, guess at your next question, I argue in a very strong way that the founders did not create a wall of separation between church and state.
0: Well, let's tease that out a little bit more, because You do make this statement in the beginning of your book um, and in the quote that I read that uh, many Americans have been taught that they desired a strict separation of church and state. But then you go on to say that that claim is patently false. So but the founders also didn't give us theocracy. So how would they have defined the separation?
3: Yeah, I think the Establishment Clause means what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. We are not going to have a national church in the United States of America. And now through the Doctrine of Incorporation, we are not going to have state churches either in Michigan or Florida or or Oregon. That's pretty much all it means. You yeah, we could tease out a little bit more, um, but it really doesn't mean much more than that. So I give a lot of evidence of this. Let me just tell you my favorite story. One of my two favorite stories, actually. Um, the day after, literally the day after the house arrived at its final language, for the Establishment Clause, Elias Boudinot, a member of Congress, stood up and said, hey guys, and I'm paraphrasing of course, hey guys, things are going well, why don't we we ask George Washington, President Washington, to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation? The um, two Southerners said, oh no, we can't do that. It's European practice. Roger Sherman, the old Puritan from Connecticut, stood up and said, no, 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 it's a biblical practice. It's worthy of Christian imitation. We should certainly ask him to do this. The House agreed with with um, Sherman and Boudinot. The Senate agreed with the House. And George Washington, who did not have to do it, issued this wonderful Thanksgiving Day proclamation in 1789. I would encourage your listeners to go and look it up. You can Google it easily enough. It's a very robust Christian um, call for prayer and thanksgiving and repentance of of, of our sins. Um, and I think this just helps illustrate that the founders did not want an established church. They certainly didn't want a theocracy, whatever we might mean by that, but they absolutely did not think that somehow there was a wall of separation between church and state that would keep presidents from issuing thanksgiving thanksgiving Day proclamations, or that um, the national government or state governments couldn't adopt voucher programs, or that World one World War one era crosses have to be removed or decapitated, um, they just wanted nothing approximating a wall of separation between church and state. Now, let me hasten to say that just because a whole lot of things are permissible constitutionally, that doesn't mean we should have all of them. And I think we could have very good debates about whether or not we should, for instance, reintroduce prayer into public schools. I happen to think that's a horrible idea um, for a variety of reasons, a variety of biblical and theological reasons, Um, but I think it is constitutionally permissible. I just want to make sure that I'm emphasizing this line between what is constitutionally permissible and what is prudential public policy.
0: I think there is a human tendency to think that Uh, our present times, because they are modern, are the best of times. (laughs) C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. Um, But I think there's also a temptation to do that in the reverse, to think that um, just because things look grim now, they must be worse than they've ever been before. Um, But I am wondering, do you think that this book is especially relevant to us today? Because I would argue that we are objectively less Christian than we used to be.
3: Oh, absolutely. Clearly we are. Um, One of the... um founders' key commitments, their key beliefs, was that you cannot have a Republican form of government if you don't have a moral citizenry. And all of them, to my knowledge, believe that religion, by which they mean Christianity, is necessary to produce a sort of morality that we have to have if we're to have a Republican form of government. Um, And so you're absolutely right. I think the founders, if they were to um, come back from the dead and uh, observe America today, would be profoundly worried uh, about the collapse of Christianity, I think it's fair to say, and especially the rise of the nuns in ONES, right? People who say, I simply have no religion. They would be very, very worried about this sort of thing. Now, I would say I tend to be an optimist, and I think that the constitutional order they created um, does have a variety of important checks in place, right? The separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism, especially. And I I certainly bemoan our moving away from federalism over the last 80 years or so. Uh, But I think these sorts of checks you know, hopefully can help preserve liberty, even as Americans become less and less religious. Although as a Christian, of course, one of my um, number one solutions is to pray for revival, right? To pray that these nuns end up uh, embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, becoming Christians. And I think this will have a salutary effect on a constitutional order. But I'm not sure it's absolutely required. Um, So, for instance, Japan seems to have a pretty solidly functioning democracy, even though it's clearly the Japanese are clearly not a Christian people and not even a particularly religious people. So I think it you know, we don't have to cry that the sky is falling, uh, but we should be concerned, and America's founders would be concerned.
0: I'd like to end on a quote that also serves as the close of your book. You write that, quote, many readers of this book are likely people of faith who are busy doing important things, such as worshiping their creator raising children, earning paychecks, and serving others. To them, politics may seem like a frustrating, tainted distraction, yet we cannot ignore the public square. Our goal in engaging the public square should not be to return America to some lost golden age, but to preserve and protect the remarkable constitutional order bequeathed to us by America's founders. I think this summarizes some of the reasons why this book is really important right now, and why it's worth thinking about the ideas that our founding came out of.
3: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm glad you agree. And I'll I'll just put in a plug for your institute. I think the Acton Institute does a wonderful job of helping people of faith think about how they can productively engage with the public square and economics, politics, and otherwise. So yeah, I think we're absolutely on the same page in that regard.
0: Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
3: Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening today. If you like this episode, Please share with friends and family and leave a rating and review in the Apple Podcast app. To learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Joel Rittering.